Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Kate O'Neill is the author of A Future So Bright, a book that argues that the best way to confront challenges and build a better tomorrow is to allow ourselves to envision the brightest future possible, while at the same time acknowledging the ways the future could go dark and working to prevent them from happening. Widely known as the tech humanist, Kate is helping humanity prepare for an increasingly tech-driven future with her signature strategic optimism. Kate is also the founder and CEO of KO Insights, a strategic advisory firm committed to improving human experience at scale. Her clients and audiences include many Fortune 500 and world's most admired companies and brands, including tech giants like Google and IBM, household names like Coca-Cola and Colgate, future-forward cities like Amsterdam and Austin, and top universities like Cambridge and Yale, and even the United Nations. Kate, welcome to the One Away Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, and I appreciate you replying to uh, my random LinkedIn message. And I, I remember I sent you a a quote that my mom sent me that resonated with your work. And I, I guess I should do that more often. You know? Yeah, remind remind the or tell the listeners what the quote was. I have it in front of me if you want me to share what it was. Oh, I, would, I, I would love for you to share. I just remember. <laughs> you said that your mom raised you on the quote, in every crisis, there is an opportunity. And you've always had tried to find the silver lining. So that's, that's that, right. That's amazing. What a great philosophy to be raised <laughs> on. Well, thank you. I, I, uh, it resonated when I was kind of looking at your work and I figured you would appreciate it. And, uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad you did. And, and you responded, um, but this is about you today, which I'm excited to dive into. Kate, for your one away moment, you know, I'm curious how you'd answer that question. You know, what 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 is the one away moment that you want to share with us today? So, you know, it's really funny. Uh, I I don't I'm going to just go ahead and, and be the rebel that says I don't really think of my life in that way. Like I don't think of the one moment as the pivotal moment. I think of there being just kind of this whole sequence of moments. But, you know, I think there have been a lot of things that have been uh, meaningful and significant. One of them maybe being when uh, I got a chance to uh, after uh, undergrad in Chicago, I got a chance to be recruited to go to Toshiba in California, and I built their intranet, their their first intranet. Uh, and there were a whole series of of kind of weird decisions and tangents and sort of circumstances that led to that, which is partly why it doesn't feel like a one you know sort of contained moment because I know how much kind of pivotal stuff went into it but when I think about everything that happened in my career from then on you know being in Silicon Valley from the mid 90s on was pretty fundamental to a lot of the the technology uh, the the innovative technology that I was exposed to and that I helped be part of you know uh, build, building and designing so uh, that certainly was one sort of macro moment that feels like it, it was really pivotal in my life. Super interesting. Well, uh, Kate, I'm, I'm curious because you built an internet in the sense that one of a, a major company, 
Um, I saw you had a degree in linguistics. Um, So I, what, what I'm just, as someone who's very curious, what led you to, you know, from maybe a linguistics background to saying, I'm going to go help a major company build a major part of the business. Right. I know. Yeah. It's a great question. And it's a, it's a good observation that, you know, you wouldn't think of a language as background as being uh, sort of ideally suited for a career in technology, (laughs) but it's actually been pretty helpful because I think it gives me a way of looking at the tech landscape about how tech helps us communicate with one another and the, the meaning that gets communicated through the interactions that we have in technology. But the way that I got to it was I actually was in uh, in languages. I was actually a German major in undergrad and a linguistics and Russian double minor. And then my grad work was in linguistics and language and develop, languages development. But um, I was supervising the language lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago the very first time that I saw the web, the graphical web. So I had seen the internet, you know, text-based internet functions um, for anyone in your audience or for yourself, even if you're not as familiar with those sort of early pre-web internet functions, there were just like, if you've ever seen a, you know, a text monitor kind of thing, a, a like a screen that just has prompts of text, that's what it all sort of used to look like. And you might be able to play some kind of a multiplayer game with friends at different schools or something like that, but it was all through text. Mm. You know, you're all just, you're typing text commands and getting text replies and everything. Um, and so when I saw the web for the first time, it was a text-based um, feature. It was just something that looked at like exactly like everything else. But then I saw the graphical web for the first time and it, it was, you know, where they actually had embedded images and formatted text and, you know, all of this kind of richness to the way that in, uh, content was being presented. And it blew my mind. And I remember having this feeling like this is going to change everything. <laughs> and of course it did. Uh, but I also got a chance to, I, I learned that I could build a website for the language laboratory, which I was supervising. And it turned out to have been uh, the first, if 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 not the first, one of the very first departmental websites at the university, which is what got it noticed um, long series of steps through by the, uh, someone at Toshiba. So this is this is kind of the 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 reason why the one away moment is kind of funny for me because there is there's this whole sequence of things that happens that that um, makes all of these things possible. And then to take that and and go, get excited about building technology, which I'd always been interested in programming and technology, uh, but keep this linguistic mindset and framework. Uh, It takes, it then takes years of working in this space before I realize how to apply that in my life and start figuring out, you know, what that consulting practice is going to look like and what value I can add back into the space because of that. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a great question and it's, but it's a, it was definitely a, uh, a tangent, I think from most people's perspective, but it's been incredibly valuable to me to retain that perspective of this kind of multilinguistic approach to the world and thinking about how technology facilitates connection and communication between people. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's almost and I hope this isn't too big of a jump, but language <laughs> in a way was almost like this key that unlocked the door 
to so much more in your life, i.e. the internet and building and connected so many dots uh, for you, which seems to be a central thread through, you know, just from what I've seen in, I mean, your tenured background in your career of all the things that you've accomplished. But what I'm, what I'm curious about, Kate, you picked linguist, linguistics maybe early. It's a, so it's such a niche major, in my opinion, just from, you know, what everyone does. I think what would be interesting for the audience and maybe as we connect the dots down the road in the show is like what what drove maybe your early interest in linguistics and language from maybe a younger age yeah yeah i'm happy to to get into that because i think that's a a really interesting thing too like i think when when i was a kid i can remember distinctly um you know being seven eight nine whatever somewhere in there kind of years old and in school we had uh, exchange students coming from France and they had, you know, the teachers had handed out to the students like a sheet, you know, just a one eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that had some phrases on it for us to learn just to be gracious and friendly. And I remember being really taken with those phrases and really studying them so that I could say these things to the students when they came. But at the same time, at that point, for some reason, and it didn't happen throughout my childhood and into my teen years, but for that, in that moment, my family was going to the library, the public library, like after dinner sometimes, and that would be something we would do together as a family. Um, and I remember finding my way to the the language learning racks and finding little Spanish language learning guides. And so very young, I was fascinated with the idea that you know there are all these different languages and one of the things that i remember very clearly observing like kind of connecting the dots and realizing was that in our language in english that you like might might hold up a book and you might be like okay this is a book right um but in spanish it's libro and in french it's libro and in german it's buch and russian it's kniga and you know you have all these different labels and terms that described the thing, which I remember the moment it hit me that that meant that the thing was different from what you call the thing and that the thing existed separate from the label for the thing, which meant that there was a difference between meaning and the underlying object mm. that describes the meaning of the meaning describes and that that meant that we are the re- we're responsible for describing the meaning of things and i just remember like having these kind of multifaceted thoughts and going like this is so fascinating and it's been truly an obsession the rest of my life is the notion of meaning and how how things work when it comes to what means what and how do we understand meaning as a as a human as human beings and it turns out that that's something that a lot of people who work around experience or work around you know neuroscience or you know so on are fascinated with as well and there's a lot to it but yeah like that carried me throughout my my life of uh in in studying languages now i also was interested when i was approaching college i was thinking about maybe majoring in theater or majoring in music as well. So it's sort of like, you know, the decision process of like, I'm going to major in German because I thought I might become a UN interpreter. Um, that, that was more of the, it felt like a practical decision at the time. Um, but I think the way that it becomes practical later in my life is by having made that observation about meaning and then being able to apply that observation about meaning to all kinds of things now. 
thinking about that in in many ways. Okay, we're 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 starting to break through here. I'm starting to see some dots. <laughs> this, this is fascinating to me, and it's funny. I my next question, which you kind of answered, was was there any um, you know, the, I I notice a lot of correlation just when I talk to people who have background in let's say programming or technology with language and music. Um, oh yeah, and, yeah, sure. And, and I'm just curious, like how you grew up. Like, we'll, we'll definitely get to the future and, and some of the things you you. This is all connected to, but with how you grown, like grew up, like were you raised in a way that your parents maybe put a lot of this stuff in front of you, or like dinner conversations were about really exploratory and diving into the meaning? I mean, have yeah, you given? You would think. Uh, you would think, right? No, no. It was. I did not grow up. My my. I love my parents. Uh, my father passed away in. 2005 and my mother's still around thank goodness but i will say you know as much as i love them they they were not raised raising us in an intellectual environment that was not what was happening so it wasn't like we were having dinner dinner table conversations that were thought provoking or anything like that i think partly one of the, one of the things was we really did love music so that was part of you know that sort of that landscape as you're describing my dad had been uh, in the army, during his time in the army, when he was stationed overseas, he became kind of a nightclub singer. Uh, he had grown up in his family. They all sang together in church. And so they did a lot of kind of choral arrangements for their family as a fairly large family. I think he was the oldest of eight or nine. I can't remember how many <laughs> sons and daughters my grandparents had. Uh, but that, you know, so there's enough of them to con constitute a, nearly a choir on their own. And they actually even made an, a recording, an album of their their family singing. Uh, so my dad had that background. And then when he went into the military, he was he was singing in these nightclubs. And this is actually how he uh, how he made a little money, made a little pocket change, you know, while he was stationed overseas. So I think that, you know, and we had an organ, uh, you know, in the in the house and he used to play. Uh, at home and all of us sang in the church choir from time to time. My sister and I both did. And uh, so I think there was just, there was this kind of love of music and that was, that was ever present. The other stuff though, like the theater um, and the uh, languages, that was more just something I think uh, there may have been little pieces that I picked up God. in my family, but it was more just a result of adopting these things from around me, like that example of the the school handing out that sheet of phrases and then mm. piecing it together into like these things just really fascinate me. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's it's so interesting to like understand where these these early fascinations come from or where you mm. derive meaning from it. And I think I was curious because uh, I was at a dinner conversation in Seattle, the, the guy kind of runs Alexa and his kids are very like, so, so the son is, you know, very much more technology driven. The daughter is very technology driven, but it is a big writing and creative writing background. And the mom is an author. Uh. And so I was at their house all weekend and I've known these kids for a couple of years, really good people. And, um, with dinner, the whole both nights, the whole conversation was around like GPT three and programming ideas <laughs> around you know how to help authors and writers you know kind of work their ideas through, through. And I was just like, are these kids like this because this has been the conversation since growing up or right. like? You know? And so, anyways, I I I which I'm sure you could appreciate giving your background, but. Um, thank you for sharing and giving us maybe an insight and also a fun way to honor your father. Sounds like a, a, a you know, well-hearted or good-hearted man. Um, so 
let's get back to this this one away moment now that we kind of went off a nice tangent uh <laughs> we, we know that music uh was a big part of childhood and growing up you always had this fast fascination for language and uh, they're deriving meaning from things mm-hmm. and like a book i thought that was fascinating so with the example that you provided at toshiba it to me it, it sounds like it was just another place to create meaning around language but for a, a company and you could kind of harness that internal curiosity to help them build a really meaningful part of the business yeah i was just gonna say i think i think you're interpretation of that is valid. And it's one that I would look back on as true, but I don't know if in the moment I was seeing it as that uh, outside of just being interested in the opportunity and in what I would learn from it. Of course. Um, But yeah, like when you, when you look back over your life, it's a lot easier to see those guideposts, those one away moments, right. And be able to connect the dots between them when you're moving forward through life. It isn't always as clear like, oh, this is a guidepost moment. This is a one-away moment, <laughs> like, right? right? <laughs> well, I, I love that. I love the Steve Jobs quote about not being able to connect the dots looking forward, but back. Right. So I don't know. That's always stuck with me of mm-hmm. trying to make sense of derive meaning from things. Um, so of course, um, but it, I, it's interesting to dive into nonetheless. Uh-huh. Sure. So once you, I'm just curious, you know, once you did this work with Toshiba and, and really dug into the interwebs uh, of things, you know, what happened next or as a result of, of that project? Well, so then I'm living in California and working in Silicon Valley and surrounded by, uh, you know, the people I'm meeting socially are all working in startups and other tech companies. And so it became very clear to me that uh, there were lots of opportunities out there, and uh, Toshiba. I felt like within within the span of a, uh, less than a year that I was there, I felt like I had done what I came to do. I'd added value, and I learned a lot, and I felt ready to move on. And so I I was at a series of startups. Next, I went from one startup to another you know, helping set up things like building their website or building their sort of tech, tech pubs program, uh, doing a lot of that kind of stuff, and then moving on to the next, hiring maybe some new people and then moving on to the next startup. And I got, I got a lot of really great experience very quickly by doing that. And within a few jumps, uh, Netflix was the next startup that I landed at. And it was, uh, it was such a great moment of this company that, crossed my radar because uh, I had bought a DVD player and there was an insert in the DVD player, uh, like a little promotional sheet insert. So the company existed already, obviously, and they were well, you know, well enough along on their path to have uh, formed relationships with DVD manufacturers to get their promotional insert into those packages. Uh, but they were still young. They were still, when I got hired, I was within the first hundred employees. So they were still very small. Uh, but what, what really caught me was, you know, I signed up for the program and I was renting the DVDs from them. And then I got an email from Netflix that said, we're beta testing a program where you would, uh, pay a monthly fee and it's a subscription. And then you'd be able to like get the DVDs that, you know, like on a rotating subscription basis. And I went, that is brilliant. Uh, so everybody knows that model. I mean, if, if you were with, Netflix before it was a streaming platform, if you used it as a DVD service, then most people know it for the DVD subscription program. What very few people know is that it actually did do a la carte 
DVD rental just like Blockbuster before it launched that subscription program. And I was a customer back when they did that. I just remember thinking they were they were so brilliant to observe that this could work. I tried the program for a few weeks and then I sent them my resume. I said, I, you know, I don't know what you need, but here are my skills. <laughs> Here's what I could do. <laughs> I'm pretty good at just figuring things out and, and building things, uh, you know, building teams around me. So they, um, they hired me, they put me in as the first content manager, uh, managing a team of content producers. And so a lot of the work we were doing had to do with information architecture and, you know, helping understand the way that uh, data and content were structured on the site to make sure that it was rich with metadata that, you know, uh, any given movie had a lot of kind of mm. uh, details about the director and the actors and, you know, the genres and stuff like that. And so that is actually one of the first projects that I, I did. I'm so curious because, um, you know, the massive amount of uh, customer data, yeah, a massive amount of data on maybe the the shows before they were screaming and maybe producing their own shows. And it sounds like part of the, the role and was the personalization element of how to maybe match consumer interest or customer interest with kind of your library of content. Yeah. Uh, can you share how, how that happened or what, maybe what that was, how you kind of created that? Yeah. So, and, and I want to be, you know, clear that I can't say that I created any of this. You know, these are teams of people having great ideas and working together. Um, but what, what I did do was, you know, helped lead a project that took the, what was then the homepage of the, of Netflix from a logged in experience when, you know, you would, you would log in and you'd be presented with all these movies that you could rent or whatever. And at the, at the, outset, it had been a fairly statically coded page. So, you know, you might have um, one movie here and one movie there and one promotional movie there or whatever, but it wasn't dynamic. And at the time, that wasn't really something that was being done. Like in 99, that's pretty early for dynamic personalization. But we, uh, this project that I helped manage, introduced dynamic personalization to that page and it was pretty revolutionary at that time. It was really exciting because we were doing, we were basing it on uh, the algorithm that, that determined what would show up in any of those kind of content placeholders was going to be based on things like, you know, your rental history and your ratings history, which, uh, which movies were available in inventory, for example. We didn't want to, you know, since it's DVDs and not streaming, it was going to be, you know, if we had a hundred of these DVDs sitting around in the warehouse, uh, then we probably wanted to promote those as opposed to if there's only like one copy and we know that it's going to go out of stock the moment you put it in your queue. Uh, so it was it was balancing those things. There might have also been maybe a revenue sharing deal with a studio and we might have wanted to promote some titles a little more heavily than others that were going to cost us more on the back end. So trying to find just the right balance within the algorithm of like which of those factors was really going to move the right content in front of you. Um, that I think was, it was exciting to be part of something so cutting edge, which has now become such a commonplace activity on, on the web uh, and in the, in the digital space in general. Uh, but also I think what they've, what they've learned, what Netflix in particular has learned about customization, personalization of content and figuring out how to balance 
all kinds of other factors. Like not only now, I'm sure you know anyone who's out there who's a, a, a customer of Netflix has probably observed that there might be times when you're looking at the recommended movies in your in your uh, options, like as you review what's available to you. And it, it's not like you're going to see the sort of movie poster of the movie, of the title. You're going to see a, a promotional still of that title. And I don't know how many of you have you noticed um, that sometimes that still changes as your viewing habits change. If you particularly like a certain actor, like maybe I've been on a Paul Rudd kick lately. I've been watching all these movies that star Paul Rudd. And so I bet in, in the near term, I'm going to see a lot more of his movies that have him front and center in the promotional still that Netflix shows me because it's clear that my viewing habits are associated with Paul Rudd consumption. So <laughs> like I'm going to be more inclined to watch those movies. So I think just the level of nuance that has been able to be built around that is pretty fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. So then that all builds from, you know, these early, early decisions. I think this part of the internet and technology is always, has just always captivated me. I, and I'll just get quick side note. Like yeah. after college, I was working on this platform, this content platform. And I was trying to work on this AI algorithm with these PhDs at Georgia to create um, word clusters off of the stories on the website to connect people through the meaning of the story. And I still think, still think to this day, like LinkedIn could do it. Facebook could do it. Like the way it populates why we should connect or recommend people, I think is still very superficial. Yet, if you could do it through shared content and the human experience of the content, maybe that's something, you know, you you have the the brains to work on. But anyways, I I kind (laughs) of crack it, but I was always so fascinated with, um, the content and the personalization. And then like, it's, as I'm on these platforms, the Netflixes of the world, it's like, wow, it's pretty accurate. You know, what, what they're serving to me. And I've just always found that so neat. And like, I don't find it manipulative. I just find it like they've, they've done a really good job cultivating a good customer experience. Well, that's the thing. I think, you know, some of it can be manipulative in some contexts, in some platforms, sure. but I think that's the trade-off that most people understand is, as long as you're going to provide me a better experience and I'm going to feel safe and cared for within that experience, and I'm not going to feel like you've stepped over some line or that you're being creepy or surveilling me inappropriately, or like, you're, you know, if, if what Netflix's decisions of what to recommend to me are based on my behavior on the Netflix platform, then that seems entirely appropriate. I think when you step over and you look at like Facebook, for example, and a lot of what Facebook is doing and getting called out for right now is because a lot of Facebook's decisions on the Facebook platform are based on your behavior elsewhere outside of the Facebook platform. And that does start to feel like, wow, what are you manipulating in my life? Like, how is this overriding the agreement that we sort of tacitly had as a user or customer and a platform? That was not how I signed on to use this platform. So I think that's the difference that anyone who's making like a data-driven human experience really has to think about is like, you know, it, Obviously, this is all very powerful information that we're collecting from people and what we have the opportunity to do with it is really powerful. But I think we have to recognize that that borderline of respect and never step over it. Well, it, I, I, I kind of agree more, uh, especially if, if, let's just say, Facebook knew, right, as the documents are starting to leak mm-hmm. uh, 
what the impacts they were having on the behavior changes outside the platform, right? And I always look at content as a vehicle to drive positive behavior change, but mm -hmm. content mm -hmm. drives negative behavior change. Not to go too far off topic, but I also think is relevant, just given maybe your more futurist mindset. In this era of personalization, data, technology, and let's just say 10 years out, this metaverse and Web3, where do you see this all going? And how does it maybe tie back to just some of the work that you're, you're, you're doing today? Because I, I bet you have some interesting thoughts about where things are headed. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, that's too broad of an area to have a where is it going kind of opinion on it. It, it intersects by then, by 10 years out, the whole metaverse play and everything that has to do with virtualized experiences and how we interact and connect on those will intersect with so many areas of life. I think we will have an awful lot of uh, entertainment experiences that play out uh, within probably five years, a lot of retail experiences that play out in, in metaverse-like spaces probably within three to five years. And what then starts to, to be possible is, is we're thinking about fields broader like healthcare and education and uh, finance and, and you know, this, these kind of broader opportunities for how much of our lives then can we find meaning in transacting some part of in a virtualized space? And how much does it behoove us to do that? How much do we get out of you know, having an educational opportunity that intersects with uh, entertainment opportunities that also happen in virtualized spaces or with shopping opportunities? And I, I don't think that there's any reason why that's not all going to be happening you know, in parallel and in, in interconnected ways. Totally. So, yeah, so it's not it's not so much a specific prediction for 10 years out. It's more just that I see over the next 10 years that all of these industries and topics and sort of disciplines will be finding more and more ways to create um, augmented and virtualized experiences. So I think virtual experiences are where everyone kind of thinks about with the metaverse, you know, that it's it's sort of like the idea of existing, like sort of playing a um a virtual game where you you are your avatar self in this virtual world. But I think what people overlook is the power of augmented reality, which doesn't necessarily take us out of our built surroundings or our natural surroundings, and yet still brings digital experiences to us in a relevant, just-in-time sort of way. And actually, I think that there's going to be an awful lot more potential and power to that in the near term than in fully virtualized environments. Completely, and, and I really appreciate and like respect your answer. And I, I think it also is interesting from a meaning perspective of just humanity and, and, and the sense and that woman who I was telling you about who's the author around the family of technology. And she, she's like, one of her books, she writes fiction, um, but it, it was, she was describing to me about how one of them is based on like what it means for humanity living in more of a virtual world and does, does it detach meaning from the human experience and like what it all, but from your perspective, I think it's really interesting how you said it's going to take and connect a lot of industries mm -hmm. that are today and give just new ways to experience them and move to these different um, ways. So I think it's interesting, especially with your background in personalization and how this is all kind of come together and, and innovate in the space. So I just appreciate your take. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting. 
Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's just a new modality of experiencing meaning. It's, it's like everybody, when, when Instagram became popular and everybody was posting pictures of, you know, their food or taking videos of concerts and everybody was kind of pearl clutching about it and going like, but people aren't experiencing the thing. They're not just being there experience like having the food and experiencing it or, or watching the concert and experiencing it. But as I wrote about in Pixels in Place back in 2016, there had been a study that I found that suggested that the act of photographing or videoing the event is itself a form of focusing our minds and curating the experience. So we're much more likely to remember and retain those experiences when we have interacted with them in that way, because we've chosen, we've chosen that moment, we've curated it, we've put it through a lens, we've decided this is a meaningful moment. And I think what people kind of need to step back from when they're you know, nervous about how these you know, new modalities change the way we interact with the space around us is that we still are able to derive meaning. We're still able to impose meaning on these things. It's just like the label of the book and the book itself, right? Like the thing is still happening, but we're deciding that there's a new label that we're putting on that. And I, I think that that opportunity is huge for every new innovation. As long as we keep it human focused and we never lose sight of you know, making sure that people can have meaningful connections to one another, they can have meaningful experiences for themselves. I think that you know, doesn't matter what the technology is. It, it matters that people are protected when they share their data, mm-hmm. and it matters that people are safe in using these experiences. But as far as you know, will there not be meaningful experiences in the metaverse? Like I think that that's that's just another form of pro clutching and people being scared of innovation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm aligned to uh, your views and, and think that I think everyone, a lot of people bash technology. They go on these technology cleanses, but I think when used effectively, technology can be actually cultivate very meaningful experiences and interactions. And um, you know, it's I think how you look at it. So, you know, I want to get to to some of your published work. I will, first, you've you've written a few books now and I've been putting your thoughts and ideas out for the world to hear. Um, I think in a really beautiful fashion, but you did just release a book, A Future So Bright. And I definitely want to give you uh, the space to speak to the book, what it's about, why you wrote it. Give us give us all the details. Sure. And I think actually that last like segment of what we talked about does uh, sort of segue nicely no. into A Future So Bright because so much of what happens when we think about the future is that we tend to isolate it into either dystopia or utopia, right? Like we tend to think like the way that literature and science fiction has sort of socialized us to talk about and think about the future is in that dichotomy, dystopia or utopia. And we never think it's going to be both. And in fact, I think most of us think utopia is really off the table. Like we're never going to have everything go exactly right and end up in this perfect idealized world. So now it's only dystopia. It's like shades of dystopia that we're ever talking about. And I think that's just such an actively harmful and unhealthy way for us to think about our own futures. It removes all agency and empowerment from ourselves and it disconnects the decisions and actions that we make every day with the outcomes and consequences that occur in the future. So I think a one piece that feels really important in A Future So Bright is actively, you know, sort of breaking down that dichotomy and saying the future is not either dystopia or utopia. It's going to maybe be a little from both columns, but what it is, is the outcome of actions that we take. And so we can make better decisions about how we're going to create this better future. Mm. And part of that is to look at opportunities like 
you know, scientific advances, technological advances, and recognize them for the risk and harm that they introduce and make sure that we put the appropriate boundaries around those harms and make sure that people aren't having, you know, their data inappropriately collected and, and that people aren't being inappropriately manipulated outside of the context in which they've agreed to. But then also look at the opportunity that those innovations present and what we can do to create more meaningful human experiences at scale as a result of those innovations and really lean into that. And I think that's the piece that I have seen us not do as much with, with opportunities in recent years. And I think as we think about the innovations that seem to be coming ahead of us in terms of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and intelligent automation and things like that, I really feel like there's so much power to leaning into what those technologies could do for us. As we look at change factors like climate change and the climate emergency, so much opportunity to leverage AI and automation to clean up the environment, to do you know, powerful things that have to do with you know, renewable energy and removing plastics from the ocean and things like that. As long as we lean into those positive outcomes and we're not fearful of what this technology yeah. is bringing, where there's fear and it's founded, we need to put the right kind of protections and regulations and whatever else in place, but just leaning into that positive, uh, those positive opportunities as well. So I, lo I love what you said about how we, we get to create the innovation of the future, but also be cognizant of the effects that it maybe ha could have. It's mm -hmm. kind of what I took away. And you yeah. kind of triggered in a positive way. I, I, and I, I'm going to bring this around, so work with me here. Okay. <laughs> when I read the book, have you read Sapiens by... Um, I find that book fascinating. And there, I don't remember, I read it probably six years ago, but or five years ago, but... Um, they're like maybe like midway through the book, it was talking about um, exploration and how when I think Europe started investing, not so much maybe in like the church, but they started investing in technologies for exploration. And it's like they, I could be wrong, but I like on, on Europe, but I, I think this is right. They knew like they needed to invest elsewhere to go explore and conquest and, and do all the the things that you know to see what was out there in the world and so they put the investment dollars in those areas opposed to maybe in the homeland mm -hmm. um so i'm using that as a way to ask the question I'm about i'm teeing it up to, to ask you the question to what you just said right you know the future is so bright like how do we know right like where to invest our time our dollars the problems to solve right because what we create is a byproduct of where we invest time and money, effort, energy. And so my question to you is it's, it's like, yeah, the future, the future could be so bright, but if we maybe focus on the right thing, so how do we know the right things to focus on and what, what we should invest our time, dollars, effort, energy into as a global society? Well, that's where I think that, you know, so this book unpacks the, the model of um, strategic optimism. This is the, the concept that I introduce in this book. And the idea is to recognize where optimistically we have the potential to make the most impact, you know, where we could bring the brightest futures, but then also have a strategy, a plan in place. And some of that plan comes back to this, you know, this concept of meaning is at the heart of this. It's the recognition that meaning at every level is a, is a really fundamental human concept. And meaning is also about what matters. 
And then we can think about innovation in this very human centric way and tech, you know, sort of technological innovation by thinking about it through that lens of meaning, as far as what matters, we can think about innovation as what is going to matter. And then I think the, the third piece or the kind of the completed, completing piece of that is to think that wherever possible, since these technologies like artificial intelligence and automation, and even you know, thinking about the metaverse, virtualized experiences and so on, all of these technologies bring with them such incredible capacity and scale that it gives us so much power to solve problems at scale. And so the opportunity is to really think about where could we make the most difference? Where could we solve for the best futures for the most people? And I think that if every time that we're stuck, you know, as leaders, as designers, as strategists, every time we're stuck and we can't figure out which is sort of the right way to go with something, if we're generally bringing ourselves back to this question of which one of these ways to go forward is going to create the best futures for the most people. Hmm. Well, that's a pretty good way to keep ourselves honest about these technologies, about, you know, sort of using these powers and capacities of scale for the future. Because with, with that incredible power and capacity and scale comes incredible power and responsibility. And we, we absolutely need to be using it responsibly because what it does is create, you know, kind of rippling effects throughout culture and throughout our legacy. So that, you know, when, when we decide what's important and we encode that into something that then gets amplified through algorithms and, and made more efficient through AI, we have just created an entire legacy system that we'll be living with and our and future generations will be living with, you know, mm -hmm. if future generations uh, have the luck to survive on this planet, uh, then I then we certainly need to be thinking about how do we create those legacy systems in ways that are going to benefit you know more people rather than fewer. Wow. So I think those those questions will keep us honest. What matters? What's going to matter? And then how do we create the best futures for the most people? I I love I love that quote. How do we create the best futures for the most people? I wrote it down. Um, I, I really appreciate the insight and I, and I think you're absolutely right. It's looking at the outsized impact that we can have. And the I like what you said too, about strategic optimism, mm -hmm. strategic in the sense of it, bettering for the most amount of people as well. Now, from, from this latest work, um, huh? is there any part of the book or any, any section that, you just want to cover that you think is super relevant to this conversation that, you know, if you walked away from this conversation, if you didn't say it, you would have regretted it. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that is part of that best futures for the most people, how do we, you know, build that future in ways that are going to ensure the human centric or, you know, kind of uh, the right legacy. One of the dots that I connect in this book is to recognize that the United Nations sustainable development goals, the set of 17 goals that have been created to sort of improve life on the planet for all for all life on the planet. Uh, that those are already a pretty darn good roadmap for business and for technology developers to think about how to align their work. So when we think about like businesses, most businesses can pretty easily choose at least one of those SDGs that they align with. So there's things like, 
you know, uh, no more poverty. And there's things like gender equality and quality education and things like that, as well as life on land and life below sea, you know, kind of improving those things or, you know, infrastructure and, uh, you know, sustainable cities and communities. I mean, there's, there, it covers such a wide range of areas to improve that there are very few companies I could imagine who would not be able to find at least one goal, if not more goals that they, you know, feel like they align with when those, when those leaders of those companies kind of get out of bed in the morning, the thing that really drives them and makes them passionate about the work that they do is probably aligned with one of those goals. The thing that's even more exciting than that is to think that when we think about what AI could do to amplify and accelerate our progress along those goals, it's incredibly powerful. And so I give an example in the book of for every single one of the 17 goals, proofs of concept, actual working proofs of concept of AI projects that are aligned with meeting those goals. Hmm. So I think that if you can imagine that it's true that businesses do have at least one goal that they align with and that AI exists that can amplify every single one of those goals, then what seems true in conclusion is that every business could be using technology to actually solve human problems at scale. Hmm. And if that's true, then there's really no ethical reason why we're not doing that. And so it's the challenge that I leave with every audience at every keynote with every group of leaders that I speak with is really think about what is it that you're trying to do at scale. Mm -hmm. And then really think about how do you solve those problems with technology? How do you align the work that you're doing with what it is you say you're trying to do at scale? Use technology to create better human futures and let's go about creating those best futures for the most people. Uh, if thousands of people are watching this, you, your face is just like brimming with just optimism and, and <laughs> so I I love the 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 challenge on thinking and how technology can enable to solve some big big problems and, and that, you know why your work is so impactful and like you, you've what's needed is like you have credibility to your story. You've been doing this you know the last couple of decades and you've seen it at a very early age now. Your, your message to other people who are the key to the world, maybe at the early part of their careers, you can go do this too. Um, and so I think that's really special. So I want to do something that I've never done. Um, oh, all right. I want to end um, with three rapid fire questions. Okay. Less than 10 seconds, gut answers. And and then we'll ask people where they can go find, buy your work. So, okay. So everything you do. All right. All right, here we go. All right. How soon do we meet aliens? <laughs> maybe never, maybe in 10, 20 years. I don't know. I'm hedging. Great. Um, <laughs> love it. Uh, when we die, afterlife, no afterlife? I say no afterlife. Okay. I, I figured that. Um, if Facebook was deleted off the web tomorrow, what would happen? Yeah, you know, I think... Ultimately, it's better for humanity if that happens. But I think that people, I think people will really struggle with how to replace what it's served for them in terms of the connection of community. So I, I think that it's better that we start now trying to figure out how to represent and how to replace those kinds of opportunities to stay connected with people in ways that aren't quite so invasive and harmful. Great. Well, I'll make sure to um, send this to my lawyer before I make sure. <laughs> Um, That's okay. Mark Zuckerberg, I'm coming for you. 
Good. Well, you, you can go for him. Just take the take the fall for me. Um, by putting this down. I'm kidding. Uh, this was Kate. This was awesome. Uh, I know we didn't give you much prep for lead time, and I think you crushed it. Um, Thank where you. where can people find your work? Uh, learn about you. Stay in touch with your ideas. Uh, my my business website is koinsights.com. That's plural, koinsights.com. And then they, I'm very active on Twitter. So people can find me there at um, Kate O, K-A-T-E-O. Uh, and elsewhere on the web, the only problem is there are a lot of other Kate O'Neill's out there. So Kate O'Neill Tech Humanist or Kate O'Neill KO Insights will definitely get you the right one. <laughs> Love it. Well, thanks for doing this. I had a ball and uh, can't wait to, to push this out to the world. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on, Brian. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.